This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. Until we can actually clean up our own domestic information environments, we are going to be so much more vulnerable to foreign actors just coming in and using that environment for their own ends. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. The United States, Canada and their allies need a more coherent strategy for their security partners operating in hybrid warfare environments. A new CSIS brief explores the relationship between allies and partners and explains why casting partners as proxies in conflict situations is problematic. I spoke with the author of the brief, Melissa Dalton, who directs the CSIS Cooperative Defense Project and is Deputy Director and Senior Fellow in the International Security Program. Also joining the conversation were Mehreen Farouk, Director of the Program Quality and Learning Department and Technical Director for Peace and Security at Counterpart International, and Laura Rosenberger, Senior Fellow and Director of the Alliance for Securing Democracy at the German Marshall Fund of the U.S. Melissa, Laura, and Merkreen, thank you so much for being here on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having us. You're welcome. You're welcome. Well, before we delve into the need for a better strategy for partners operating in hybrid warfare environments, I'd like to start with the question of exactly what is hybrid warfare and capacity building? Melissa, can you answer that for us? Great. And thanks again, Bev, for, for hosting us for this great discussion this morning. You know, there's a lot of debate actually around what hybrid warfare actually means in academic literature, in the policy community. What we've used for, for our project is the working definition that CSI has produced in the course of doing its gray zone competition project over the last few years. Gray zone being fairly analogous to hybrid warfare defined as an effort or series of efforts intended to advance one security objectives at the expense of arrival using means beyond those associated with routine statecraft, but below means associated with direct military conflict between rivals. So what does that actually mean in the real world? What we've seen over the last few years is rivals to the United States and its allies, such as Russia, China, and Iran, using coercive approaches and tools for undermining U.S. and allied interests that typically take the form of political and economic coercion. Um, so if you think about how Russia may try to influence the political campaigns or back certain political parties in some allied countries. On the economic side, if you think about China's Belt and Road Initiative having coercive elements to it, it's those basket of activities. Hybrid warfare can also include the use of disinformation or misinformation, the use of cyber and space operations like jamming GPS devices and the use of, of proxy forces, which we've seen Iran certainly do throughout the greater Middle East. And what are some of the major hybrid warfare threats that the U.S., Canada and their allies face? So, you know, we've seen over the last number of years, certainly the threats of disinformation and cyber attacks here at home in terms of disrupting the 2016 election on the part of Russia in terms of the U.S. engagement in the Middle East 
combating and confronting Iranian proxy networks such as Hezbollah and other proxies in Iraq, in Yemen, in Syria, and certainly in the space domain. We've seen increasing challenges with the use of satellite technology and jamming to disrupt global communications. So you mentioned several things here that I want to follow up on and bring in Marine and Laura on. First and foremost, the report that or the brief that you've written talks about partners not being proxies. And I would like you guys to talk about why that is important, that if you're working as a partner to an ally, that you not be considered a proxy. When thinking about this hybrid warfare space, the fact is that democracies also have these tools and have used these tools. But unlike China, Russia, and Iran, democracies face higher risks for using hybrid tools because we are bound by our principles and our laws that are there for very good reasons. They are inherent in who we are as democracies. And so rather than trying to mirror image our rivals, we need to resist the urge to do that when using hybrid warfare tools like working with security partners, because our laws, principles, and values are actually strategic advantages in hybrid warfare. So when we think about how we want to approach our security partnerships around the globe, we need to be thinking about them as partners, not as proxies to maximize strategic action and operational effectiveness. And you mentioned disinformation and misinformation. Laura, let me bring you in here because the competitors to the U.S. and Canada and their allies have certainly used information as a weapon, both in disinformation and misinformation. How can partner capacity be improved to tackle this type of hybrid warfare? Thanks, Beverly. And and thanks, Melissa. This is a really great and important report and conversation to be having. So on the challenge of misinformation and disinformation, I think there's a couple of things that partners can be doing with one another to build capacity. The first is, I think this speaks to some of what Melissa was just talking about, but it's really important to think about you know, the sort of who is the actor that we're talking about, that we are actually working with to build capacity within partners. You know, a lot of the the responsibility for dealing with mis- and disinformation really falls outside of the traditional military space and should fall outside of the traditional military space. And so number one, I think that that we need to identify the right actors from the civilian side of governments to be working with. But the second piece of it is that a lot of the capacity that we need to deal with mis- and disinformation from foreign actors is really actually resides in civil society and in the private sector. And that's an area where working together to build resilience, I think, is a really critical piece. I think it requires reconceptualizing some of how we do capacity building from a traditional means, Um, really thinking about, again, this actor perspective, who's the right actor to be doing, you know, whether it's the exposure of information operations, whether it's fact checking to the extent that that's effective. And we can talk about the sort of limited efficacy of, of fact checking and debunking. And then who is actually doing the more affirmative messaging strategy? One of the things we know in dealing with particularly foreign mis- and disinformation is that having sort of truth, transparency, and a real affirmative strategy from democratic governments is really, really important to prevent there from being information voids that can be filled. So I think that's just a very high level overview of the kinds of things that we need to be doing on the capacity building front to deal with mis- and disinformation. 
And Marine, let me bring you in here because your work kind of is at the intersection of governance and peace building, stabilization, countering violent extremism, and you work specifically with a lot of fragile states in terms of this issue. What are the most significant areas or threats that you're concerned about as they relate to human rights and protection of civilians as we talk about hybrid warfare? Thank you, Beverly. And I'd really like to commend CSIS on this timely report as it really underscores the vulnerability of fragile states' susceptibility to hybrid warfare threats. You know, our work really focuses, as you mentioned, a lot on how civil society can partner with government and the private sector to kind of prevent some of those vulnerabilities to the hybrid warfare tactics that Melissa described. Some of the challenges that they're facing, though, are are, are fairly significant. So we're looking at the space for civil society shrinking in a lot of countries, and we're seeing this marked by increased harassment, intimidation, repression tactics by government and state actors, both online and offline. We're seeing a lot of groups that are trying to promote human rights and civic rights, and the space for challenging uh, certain policies is increasingly shrinking. And so there's a great need for investing in digital safety training for civil society activists, as well as informing you know different groups about their rights and where they're able to gently nudge and work in partnership with government actors. You know, I think one of the greatest challenges that we see from a capacity building side of civil society is that largely, you know, they're, they're very effective at being reactionary. They're extremely skilled at mobilizing tens of thousands of people out on the streets for organizing boycotts. We see this, for example, quite often in Pakistan and Bangladesh, where you have, you know, citizen driven demands for change from government. But to actually follow through on what that change looks like requires an understanding of public policy, how to leverage, you know, uh, political economy analyses, understanding who those champions and are for change. And in these increasingly complex environments, understanding those pathways for change are rapidly changing. And so, you know, working with our counterparts in, in the civil society space and helping them understand, you know, how to go beyond just calling for regime change to actually focusing on public policy and advocacy changes on social accountability mechanisms. A lot of the things that really fuel those political grievances are things that can help these communities in the long run. And leaping Laura into this part of the conversation as well, it, when you mentioned civil society shrinking and the, and the issues that are created in that kind of situation, aren't they compounded by the fact that there are actors using mis- and disinformation in order to foment some of the shrinking of civil society and fomenting, if not unrest, just societal divisions? Yeah, I mean, I think this manifests differently in different countries. And obviously, there's different national contexts for, you know, both shrinking civil society. And of course, sometimes that's a factor actually of, of you know, governments themselves within particular countries, really pushing for, you know, the, the shrinking of that space. But then, yes, there's no question that that foreign actors also seek to to target civil society very directly both to co-opt, sometimes unwittingly, civil society group, or to foment division within and between them. And I think it does really point to the complex nature of harnessing civil society to deal with these challenges when it, you know, when we're dealing with spaces where civil society is itself shrinking. It, you know, really points though back to some of the most basic 
good governance principles around rule of law and, you know, the key institutions and aspects of functioning democratic societies being one of the most important ways to bolster democracies against many of these challenges. A strong civil society is going to be much more able both to have the capacity to deal with and resist some of the more direct challenges that these tactics pose. And let me bring Melissa back into the conversation. I probably should have asked you this earlier, but how are security partners typically used in hybrid warfare? Thanks, Bev. And, you know, I think it is really important to fold this into what Harine and Laura have been talking about, the fact that security partnerships have a really important role to play, um, but they ought to be a supporting function to these challenges that Harine and, and Laura have been speaking about, because there is a tendency, particularly in U.S. strategy, to overemphasize and reach for security partnerships because they're so visible and intangible, but oftentimes are not necessarily the best tool for the purpose at hand or the challenge at hand. But what we see security partners doing in these types of hybrid contexts, they are typically on the front lines, if you will, whether it's in Ukraine battling disinformation and cyber campaigns emanating from Russia, the UAE tracking Iranian proxy groups in the Gulf region, or Vietnam patrolling the South China Sea amidst China's expansionist territorial claims, security partners certainly have a vital role to play. But what we're trying to craft here today, and I think unpack, is the necessity of of nesting those into a broader civilian-led campaign approach for hybrid challenges and focusing security partnerships in a very selective and principled approach to determine where can we best place our targeted investments in support of this broader strategy. And the brief gives a number of guidelines for both partners and allies. And I would love it if you could kind of walk us through some of the some of the guidelines that you're recommending partners and allies consider as they work on these challenges. Yeah, thanks, Bev. I, I'll hit on, I think, three of the most important ones. Um, there are several in the report. The first is that the U.S. and its allies should strive to be the partner of choice. Again, you know, thinking back to what are the strategic advantages that the U.S. and its allies have in these contexts, it's the fact that we can be reliable, committing up front to common objectives and outcomes defined with the partner, treating them as a partner so that they have a say in how to define those outcomes and objectives with clear communication as to expectations, red lines, and the duration of the partnership, but also making clear about the steps that'll be taken if the partner makes choices that depart from that principled approach. That keeps us within the parameters of who we are and and what our strategic advantages are in, in hybrid environments. We should also be striving to provide quality training, advising, and equipment to en- enable interoperability with allies and other partners and sustainment to provide actual military capability rather than you know something that's just going to sit on the runway. The fact that what we can provide in being the partner of choice is quality. And this idea of transparency, I think, is really critical too. being transparent with the partner, with the partner's civilian authorities and the public, both here at home, as well as in the partner country context about the purpose and expectations for the partnership. 
The second recommendation I'd like to highlight is the importance of partner legitimacy. Oftentimes, when we approach security partnerships, we're very focused on capacity, capability, and political will of the partner. I think what we're seeing in hybrid warfare environments is this question of legitimacy in the eyes of the local partner context, amongst their public, amongst their civil society, is really vital to buttress resiliency of the partner in these contexts as competitors are trying to discredit, corrupt, or alienate our partners in the course of our operations. And then finally, I'd like to highlight the necessity of the U.S. and its allies working together to create a dynamic campaign approach for hybrid warfare. Because these environments move so swiftly beyond what are typically pretty static coalition plans, where competitors are routinely testing the boundaries and thresholds of what the U.S. and its allies will abide, including the coercion of partner institutions, the use of dis and misinformation operations and cyber intrusions, we have to be creating a dynamic campaign approach with an adaptable mandate for partners that can flex to the evolving threats from competitors while still being bounded by the principles that play to our strategic advantages. A couple things here to follow up on. You mentioned the other actors and the challenges that they may present because they're not as concerned about the human rights and protection of civilians that the U.S. and Canada and its allies may be concerned with. How can democracies operate in this environment without going against their principles and yet still fight against what the other potential donors may offer that would be attractive to the security partners that we would like to work with? It's a great question. And, you know, I think it's doubly hard when the U.S. and its allies have countervailing security interests in play, you know, whether it's counterterrorism or counter narcotics or now with strategic competition, that impulse to want to overlook or bypass some of our principles and practice, particularly if our partners, um, you know, sometimes don't necessarily live up to those standards on a day to day basis. But I think it goes back to being really clear up front about what the expectations are for the partnership and be, being willing to have the hard conversation if we do see missteps or transgressions away from a principled path. Because if we don't uphold that approach, we expose both ourselves and our partners to, to censure and, and ridicule and, you know, the traps of the information campaigns that our rivals are, are promulgating in terms of, you know, the, the U.S. and its allies actually being double-faced and not true to, to ourselves in these situations. It, it opens us up to those vulnerabilities if, if we don't hold to that path. The other key piece of this, I think, is how we define military professionalism. And really, you know, we can look no further than how the U.S. and its allies approach the professionalism of, of their own security forces when it comes to respecting human rights, when it comes to healthy civil-military relations and respect for the rule of law. This is what it constitutes being a professional security force or, or military. And so instilling that ethos into our training and advising approaches with our partners, I think, will appeal to you know, the sense of, of wanting to be a, a professional organization or, or group in these countries that we are working with. I'm curious, how has COVID impacted the hybrid environment? Maureen? 
you know, I think as, as many of us can imagine, COVID-19 has really placed a tremendous amount of pressure on already weak and fragile systems, particularly health systems. And so as a result, we're now seeing government and civil society desperately playing catch up. So in many fragile states, COVID is really highlighting many of these endemic governance challenges that, you know, even Laura was pointing to earlier. So Things like the lack of transparency and accountability of the health services, the embedded discrimination of resource distribution, the lack of citizen redress protocols, or even means for citizens to shape what those emergency response systems should look like. And, you know, I think the the CSIS report rightly notes that states under the shadows of hybrid environments are taking this opportunity, unfortunately, to further crack down on opposition and any critics of their public health responses. And so we're seeing, for example, in, in China, Bangladesh, across Latin America, numerous arrests of journalists that are covering these public health responses. And there is now increasingly, I think, a greater fear that COVID mitigation tools may open the door for additional surveillance, uh, civil society and and different stakeholders. So it's certainly a dangerous trajectory. States that further restrict civic discourse, we know historically leave fewer options for individuals to seek change through nonviolent democratic channels. So the point here really is that you know, we're, we're facing a global pandemic, but talking about building the capacity to prevent fragility, and this isn't really the ideal time to start. So in an ideal world, a lot of those preventative efforts that we would have put in place should have been you know, initiated well before so that those governance strengthening initiatives, the activities to mitigate some of those drivers of conflict and violence, they really require that long-term investment. Just to give you an example of what some of that looks like, you know, we're talking about working with civil society groups and, you know, helping community groups understand the dangers and and the, and the positive benefits of different surveillance tools, you know, how to leverage different civic tech resources for improved government accountability and transparency, and as well as also the potential for abuse there. Some of this also, I think, requires stepping up online safety training for a lot of these civic actors, including journalists. And so organizations like Counterpart, like other implementing partners of USAID, are looking increasingly at ways to do this remotely, since, unfortunately, with a lot of the stay-at-home restrictions, we're unable to, to do a lot of these trainings in person. Some of it also, I think, you know, requires at a very grassroots level, you know, working with communities to train them on digital safety and and how to create peer safety nets. So how do you intervene, for example, when somebody in your social network seems to be susceptible to disinformation? You know, how do you catch those people before they step inside that echo chamber? So these are some of the sort of early response mechanisms that, you know, we've been working with community groups for quite some time to have in place for this very type of situation. And Laura, to bring you in on the mis- and disinformation angle, as far as it concerns COVID, has there been an impact or a stepping up even of these types of campaigns and using COVID in order to spread more mis- and disinformation? 
We've certainly seen an enormous amount of mis- and disinformation alongside the COVID pandemic. The World Health Organization has actually referred to this as the infodemic alongside the pandemic. But I would just note a couple of things for context here. First, the vast majority of what we're seeing in terms of mis- and disinformation is largely from domestic actors in specific countries. And so what that means is the information environment is already more vulnerable and primed, essentially, foreign actors who have, you know, sort of geopolitical intents behind their mis- and disinformation activities to then come in and push their own campaigns. So the most prominent actor, frankly, that we've seen in terms of COVID-19 mis- and disinformation from a sort of foreign actor perspective is actually the Chinese party state. We've seen not only a much more aggressive overall information strategy from Chinese officials and state media, but we've seen really in a notable departure from past practice of sort of China's information operations, the employment of coordinated disinformation narratives around particularly questions of the origin of the virus. In the most prominent theory, the narrative that's been pushed, the conspiracy theory that's been pushed is the idea that the virus actually originated at a U.S. bioweapons lab and was brought to China by the U.S. Army. To spread that theory, Chinese officials actually amplified and lifted up a known conspiracy website based in Canada and have amplified a theory that they had been pushing. But they've also pushed, you know, conflicting theories that maybe the virus actually originated in Italy. They misleadingly edited an interview with a an Italian doctor in order to sort of spread that idea. So multiple conflicting theories about where the virus may have actually originated. And that, in fact, is a tactic we've seen Russia use in particular in the past when it has sought to deflect blame from itself for previous instances. And so I think, you know, what we've seen from China has been particularly notable. We've, of course, seen mis- and disinformation coming from Russian actors, Russian state media in particular. But in many ways, it's actually been sort of in the passenger seat, I would say drifting off of, to mix my metaphors, I'm drafting off of the disinformation that the China's been pushing. But we've also seen really emerging in this moment what one of my colleagues has called the triad of disinformation, which is a real circular amplification efforts by Chinese, Russian, and Iranian state media around disinformation narratives that they've been pushing pretty aggressively around the virus. So I I think that that's the sort of the geopolitical piece of it. I do just want to return to this domestic piece of it because I think, you know, until we can actually clean up our own domestic information environments, we are going to be so much more vulnerable to foreign actors just coming in and using that environment for their own ends. That's absolutely fascinating, Laura, particularly when you consider if all of this is happening in fragile environments and people are desperately looking for correct information, it just seems like it's a playground for actors who have a nefarious intent. Melissa, I'll give you the last word as we run out of time here. 
Great. Thanks so much uh, to everyone for the terrific conversation today. And, you know, I think it's clear that it's an incredibly complex environment that the U.S. is trying to undertake security partnerships within when we're facing challenges both at home and abroad, including these domestic features that Laura has been talking about, the complexity of the fragile environments that Bahrain spoke to, and then layered on top of that, the geopolitical ambitions of U.S. and allied rivals like China, Russia, and Iran. So being really selective and targeted in how we pursue our security partnerships in the midst of this, I think, is is a challenge um, worth undertaking. And we hope that the new CSIS report provides some at least initial guidelines to to pursue them effectively. Melissa, Maureen, Laura, thank you so much for being here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I really appreciate it. Very informative today. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.